0: God and Father, please would you accomplish many wonderful things in us by your words this morning. Help us all to draw closer to Jesus and to be brought into his kingdom if we're not there already. We pray for your mercy, we pray for your grace, we pray for your sovereign love to be at work even now. Amen. Well, for the limited purpose of um, what I'm about to do, it might be quite good, actually, that there are, in fact, only a couple of us here in the building this morning. Fire! I've just shouted the word fire, if you didn't already get that. Um, What do we know about my use of the word fire as I just used it then? Well, um, for a start, we know that um, the word fire tells you that there's fire around. Um, so, and, and even the very content of the idea of fire—you know that the word "fire" talks about this thing, which is the rapid oxidation of a material in the exothermic chemical process of combustion, releasing heat, light, and various other um, reaction products. Thank you, Wikipedia. I'm telling you about this thing, fire. That word means something to you. And if I'm yelling it in a building, it's probably because there's some around. So in that sense, the content of the word fire, you know what's going on there. But also, as I yell the word fire, well, I'm doing something, aren't I, with my words? I I want something to happen to you. I want you to do something as I use that word fire. So, some of you will, if you were all here, let's imagine that the building is full, would get up, go to the doors, and help other people go to the doors. Other, others of you would go and find a fire extinguisher. Someone else, hopefully, would be calling 999 and getting on the phone to the fire brigade and things like that. One word, but I'm speaking it, wanting it to do different things, and it will do different things depending on who you are. We do things with our words. In the act of remembrance, just a moment ago, we used words to remember. Yes, of course, we were thinking about things in our heads. We saw some pictures, perhaps, on the screen. But the very words of remembrance do the work of remembering. They, they are themselves an act that gets something done. Why am I making a point about this? Well, because we're made in the image of a wordy God who does stuff with words. He spoke creation into being, let there be light He upholds creation with his word. Let the earth bring forth fruit. Everything is upheld by the word of his power. In the book of Isaiah, we're told that his word goes out and does not return to him empty. It does exactly what he wants it to do. When we study the Bible, we're not just looking for inspiring ideas that we want to take away to our everyday lives, but actually through the Bible, God has said he is getting stuff done, particularly when the word is preached on occasions such as this. God is using his word to get stuff done. And in this morning's passage, we come to Jesus explaining what he is doing with his words. Jesus uses words to get stuff done. He's done a lot of teaching in Matthew's Gospel, but he's also been using his words to do particular things. He's done some warnings, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's made some pretty extraordinary invitations. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And in this morning's passage, Jesus begins speaking, we're told, with parables that was in Matthew 13 verse 3 he told them many things in parables now Jesus has used parables or parabolic sayings before in Matthew 7 he uses the image of two houses one built on rock one built on sand to explain what it looks like to build your your life on Jesus or to build your life on your own terms so he's used parables before, but, but we enter now in Matthew 13 a kind of new level of teaching, a, a new um, section in which parables are now the central focus. <clears throat> well, what is a parable? We'll see why in a moment Jesus teaches with parables. He's quite clear, actually, about why it is he's using them. But it's worth, think- worth thinking about what a parable is. Now, you can define parable slightly more broadly. You can can think about it as any kind of word picture or story um, or association between one area of life used to sort of illustrate a completely different area of life. If you're defining it that broadly, then even really short proverb-like sayings might be parables. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, for instance. You might want to say that is like a parable. Often, however, parable is slightly more narrowly understood to mean something like a story or, or, a, or a, a sort of slightly um, extended word picture, where there's either one or two points in it which teaches about heavenly realities. The old Sunday school saying is an earthly story that sh- uh, that communicates a heavenly reality. Might be a good place for you to start. Some people say Jesus uses parables because he's such a great communicator. You know, he knows how to make ideas stick. Concrete instances from daily life to kind of drill home really tricky, abstract, spiritual realities. And in one sense, that is true. The parables, for instance, of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan have endured through the ages because of just how powerfully they communicate God's grace. But Jesus says in our passage particularly, that's not all that parables are. They're not just means by which Jesus proves himself to be a better orator than a TED Talk veteran or some political um, inspirational figure. According to our passage today, Jesus is doing something when he teaches in parables. And one commentator says very helpfully that he is at one and the same time Revealing, yes, but also, and this is going to be a tricky point for us, concealing truths about God's kingdom. Using parables in this way, Jesus is both bringing people into the kingdom and he is also hardening people outside that kingdom. Parables, yes, may make ideas stick, but they also make people unravel. Through using parables in this way, Jesus is doing something really quite sobering with his words, and sometimes that's forgotten when we think about Jesus speaking in parables. So, verse 13 is a a particularly helpful verse for this, because (laughs) Jesus says, this is why I'm doing it. And what is he talking about when he says, this is why I'm speaking in parables? Who am I speaking to in parables those who see and yet do not see. And so first we have to, have to ask this question, what aren't they seeing? These people that are receiving the parables, what aren't they seeing? And um, I want to start by summing it up in quite a simple, simple little point. Jesus is not a spiritual Joe Wicks. Okay, Jesus is not a spiritual Joe Wicks. What do I mean by that? If you don't know who Joe Wicks is, absolutely stand-up guy. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Been doing great stuff during the lockdown, keeping people. uh, He's the exercise guy, the body coach. Does a lot of workout in your living room kind of thing. During lockdown, he's been keeping families active. Broader than that, it's part of his mission to help people look after their bodies and indeed their mental health better. He's fantastic. I'm not knocking Joe Wicks at all. But the point is, Jesus is not just the spiritual version of Joe Wicks, He's not a life coach or a helper to get through life as I want it to be, to help me become a better me in the ways that I think are a better me. Jesus isn't like that. What is Jesus dealing with? Look at verse 11. Jesus is dealing with the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God in glorious life. That is the kingdom of heaven. He's not dealing with nifty little illustrations about how to get along better in life, but why life is as it is in the first place and how only God can do something about it. Parables are dealing with eternal life, not everyday living. And what is it about Jesus that's claimed in Matthew's gospel that means he is at the heart? Because he is at the heart of the secrets of the kingdom. Well, we've learned already in Matthew's gospel Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus' name, God saves, means Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. At the baptim- baptism of Jesus, we have this astonishing revelation of what we call the Trinity, God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's right at the end of Matthew's gospel as well that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And what we learn about Jesus is he is the Son sent by the father in the power of the spirit quite a massive claim that is being made there about jesus christ and therefore as the sent son he has some strong words to say we've already covered some of them repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand come to me all who are weary and i will give you rest only one who is god can claim that kind of thing And then, of course, later on in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to get to the the climax, as it were, of Jesus' life, his death on the cross and his resurrection. We've already spoken about it. We're here on Remembrance Sunday. And one of the reasons why churches find it such a privilege to be so involved in Remembrance Sunday is that thinking about men and women who have given their lives for the sake of others reminds us that actually what they have done is a reflection, an embodiment, an echo of a profound and beautiful principle that actually stands at the heart of human history, that is found ultimately at its highest, we might say, in the Christian faith, in the gospel, where God gave his life as a man in the place of others so that they might live, dying on the cross defeating the enemy of death itself, bringing about new life, bringing about freedom, freedom from guilt and shame and fear itself, because as on the cross as he died, he satisfied his own judgment against our sin. This is the Jesus we're dealing with in Matthew 13, him and no one else, quite a unique figure indeed, and that is why he can say the secrets of the kingdom will revolve around me. And by talking about the secrets or perhaps the mysteries of the kingdom, there are two things worth noting. The first is, if they're a secret, if they're a mystery, someone's got to reveal them. God has to reveal them. Getting to God cannot be something we do on our own effort. It is not something that we can just discover. We do not ascend. He comes to us. He must do. And in Jesus Christ, he has. So, secret kind of points towards the fact that God must do that first. And secondly, I keep pressing this point, you don't come to Jesus to find out how to do better at the life you already have, but to find out about the life that God always intended for you. There are eternal spiritual things at stake. That is what we're dealing with, with Jesus, the secrets of the kingdom. He doesn't stand as one amongst many, but as a unique one who alone ultimately matters. And that's where Jesus goes at the end of our passage today, verses 16 and 17. He speaks to the disciples and says, your eyes are blessed, your ears are blessed, because you have seen and heard something which all of these amazing men and women, these heroes of the faith, they, they longed to see this. Who's he talking about? Well, people like Moses, who saw God thump the Egyptians, destroy them, lead, lead the Israelites through the Red Sea. Moses received the law at the top of Sinai. His face would glow after speaking with God, yet yeah, he, he would have loved to have been where the disciples are. Or King David, who saw God establish his kingdom time and time again. Or, or Isaiah, we heard about that vision that the prophet had of the glorious God in his temple. Isaiah comes face to foot with the holy God, bows down before him. And yet Isaiah has not seen quite the glory of God that these disciples are seeing. What is it that they are seeing and hearing? Quite simply, Jesus. I mean, what a claim to make about yourself. Jesus is saying, all that they saw, those ones in the past, don't compare with what you are seeing right now. You are seeing me, in me. He is saying the promises of safety, of new life, of peace and deep assurance that our failures have been wiped away. The promise of a vision of God that brings happiness and unfathomable joy right here. The kingdom of heaven, the life of God present in this one, Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus is rejected. We've been reading about that prior to our previous um, sermon series on the four points um, uh, the, the sort of earlier stuff in Matthew's gospel from a while ago we were we were thinking about the fact that Jesus is being rejected the Pharisees the teachers of the law people who think he's just a bit nuts who don't like his call to uh, um, repent um, because of their sin even at the start of our passage the end of Matthew 12 Jesus's own family don't get who he is and in one sense don't want to get who he is they want Jesus on their terms come outside Jesus Come outside and speak to us. We want you to come to us. You're just Jesus. Come to us on our terms. And so Jesus does go outside, but not to them. He goes outside to the whole crowd and starts teaching in parables from the boat. And clearly we have something significant here. We have this run of parables of the kingdom now. What it means to be part of it, and also what it means to be outside of it. And the first parable we have is this one of the sower and the soils, The same seed is cast out, but the field is in different conditions depending on where you're looking. Some of the seed takes root, some of the seed doesn't take root at all, some of the seed actually does properly grow in this soil. There are probably other parables that are recorded, but this is the one, if you like, that is the parable about parables, which I think is why Matthew then has the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, why are you teaching in parables? You know, exhibit A, this really quite obscure bit of teaching about seeds and soils. And we come back now to verse 13. This is why I speak in parables. So in verse 10, the disciples have come and said, after the parable, why do you speak in parables? He explains the knowledge of the secrets have been given to you. Um, and we'll get onto to that kind of stuff in a minute. But verse 13, this is why I speak. Seeing they do not see hearing they, those ones in the crowd, do not understand. The crowds are full of those who refuse to take Jesus on his own terms, to take him at his word, to commit to him, to repent and turn back to God. They refuse to realize that Jesus is the key to the secrets of the kingdom. Jesus is the very life of God here. Jesus is the secret of God's plan of salvation These people have refused to see who Jesus actually is and therefore refuse to take him on his own terms. They they see the man called Jesus and yet they don't see God saving his people, which is what Jesus means. They hear his words in that the sound waves caused by the vibrations in his voice box hit their eardrums, but yet they don't actually hear God's words of life. It's like looking at beautiful handwriting in a foreign language. You see it, but you don't get it. Refusing to accept Jesus and his word. That is who he's speaking to. He is speaking to these crowds, people who are seeing without seeing. In 2007, world-class violinist Joshua Bell... Um, went down to a subway station in Washington, D.C., and he took with him a violin worth about $3.5 million. For 45 minutes, he stood there playing a set of pieces that only a few days before he'd played at Carnegie Hall, and many people had paid many hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars to hear him play in a sell-out crowd. During that time, a 1,000 people went past him in this subway station. Seven of them stopped to listen. Only one of them recognised him. They saw and heard one of the world's best violinists playing on one of the world's most expensive violins. They, They saw and heard him playing music that people pay hundreds of dollars to hear. And yet, that's what they saw and heard. But if I can put it like this, that's not what they saw and heard. To them, he was just another busker. Perfectly pleasant, fine, but nothing special. They heard the notes without hearing the music. They had other things taking up their attention, so they didn't want to stop and appreciate what was on offer. They were scurrying on their way to work, on their way to school, except for those few who were prepared to have their day interrupted. Now, I'm going to stretch the illustration a little bit, but bear with me. In Jesus, we have not the violinist, but the master symphonist himself. The one who has composed the entire score of the diverse melodies and themes of this world. The one who understands why it is now discordant and the only one who can make it harmonious once again. Told you I was gonna stretch it. He is the one with the secrets to the kingdom. He is here. Only he can heal and make sense of this world. And yet the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious elites, Jesus' his own family we heard in our passage, you and me scurry around our lives, attending to lots of yet perfectly fine legitimate things, but thinking that they are better things to attend to than stopping and listening to Jesus Christ. And if we keep refusing to see or hear, well, then Jesus gives us what we want. That is why he speaks in parables, he says. If you're scurrying around not wanting to listen to this one, then you're going to keep scurrying around and Jesus is going to speak in a way that will ensure you keep scurrying around. He is going to teach in a form using parables that are not clear on their face. The only way you're going to get what the parable is about is if you commit to Jesus, listen to him, and make him the one that you submit to. If you're not prepared to do that, then the parables are just going to be silly stories that don't really mean anything. And Jesus does that deliberately. If you have chosen not to have him as your king, then he will teach about the kingdom in a way that hardens you against it. You see, Jesus is doing something with his words. People understand the parables intellectually, they understand what it's saying, but but the very fact they're not a straightforward message means that for people who don't want Jesus, these messages, these parables are going to push them away. With his words, Jesus brings people into the kingdom. With his words, he hardens people outside the kingdom who refuse him. And yet, this isn't unjust, this isn't, what, this isn't going against what the people want. And that's what he's getting at in verses 14 and 15 with this quote from Isaiah about blind eyes, deaf ears, and hard hearts. Just like the idols that they worship, these people have been going after other gods. Isaiah has had this vision of God, we read about it, and he's received a pretty difficult commission, go and preach. And yet his preaching to people who have been worshipping other gods is going to ensure that they Keep on going in their rejection. Did you see that in Isaiah 6? Actually, you're going to keep on doing this until the land lies waste. Your preaching is going to be a tool of judgment upon people who don't want anything to do with me. I mean, Isaiah didn't have a complicated message, it's not as though it was difficult to understand. I mean, it was basically repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, um, come to God, and find comfort, rest, and peace. But the thing is, the more that you point out the folly of worshipping other gods, the more someone is going to be inclined to keep on doing it. Why? Because we're stubborn. Abby, I'm I'm sure, would never say that I'm a stubborn person, although um, maybe, maybe she would. But let's move from me and think about children. Think about a child who's, I don't know, putting some glue in their hair. And you say to them, stop putting glue in your hair. They're just going to pour the whole pot over their head. This may or may not be taken from a real life story. We're stubborn. Jesus is preaching a pretty similar message to Isaiah repent, come to God, only He can give you comfort and rest. But what He's saying is in these, these verses here, I'm speaking to the same kind of people as I was speaking to people who've already decided against God, people who already have blind eyes, deaf ears, hard hearts. And therefore, as I preach to them and speak in these parables, I'm going to be hardening them encouraging them along a line that they've already chosen for themselves what he's saying by saying the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled is saying here as I'm here actually what we have is the fulfillment of what has always been the case that sinners don't want to listen to their judge and that's a pretty sobering idea Jesus telling of the parables is a dividing work it's part of that dividing work that will be carried out on fullness on Judgment Day between those who inherit eternal life and those who don't. And the difference between those two groups is one thing. What do you make of Jesus Christ? Bear in mind Jesus' invitations. They're open to everyone. Come to me, anyone who is weary, and I will give you rest. What is the qualification? Being weary, wanting rest. Come to Jesus. You will get it. Chapter 12, verse 50 Whoever does the will of my father becomes my brother, my sister, my mother. What is doing the will of the father? Well, seeing the world God's way, accepting him at his word. Specifically, the father has said in Matthew 3, this is my beloved son. The father says in, I think it's Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So at least in part, we know what is doing the will of the father. It is listening to his beloved son. Anyone who does that, anyone who commits to Jesus will be brought in by his words of the kingdom. But if you refuse to listen, if you see him without seeing him, you'll remain unable to see God forever. And that's what verse 12 is getting at. Whoever has will be given more, he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. It's speaking particularly about Knowledge here, I think. And we know this is true from the ordinary run of things. Um, you have limited knowledge about something, you don't use it, and then one day you realize it's just gone. As you found in writing this sermon and using my little fire illustration at the start, um, in year, I don't know, eight or nine science, I probably learned what fire was and how it works. Um, but then I decided to pursue a life and career and all the rest of it that led me down a humanities train, and I've completely forgotten pretty much any science I once knew um (laughs) thankfully wikipedia was able to help me out but you know i haven't really got much left you know what's an atom things like that but the thing is if you don't use the knowledge it goes general principle jesus says that's true of spiritual things too you you might have some some awareness but actually you've got to act on it maybe you maybe you've been brought up in church Um, Maybe your parents um, keep bringing you to church. Maybe you're familiar with the stories about Jesus. You're able to recite quite a lot of things about the Bible. Um, That knowledge is great. Act on it. Don't let it slip away. Don't sit back and think, well, one day I might fit Jesus in. Because if we don't act, then the knowledge we do have will actually be worthless to save us. There's no Wikipedia on Judgment Day. And so there is quite a warning here. When we hear the gospel message, only one of two things happens, and it must be one of these. Either we move towards Jesus or we move away from him. There is no neutral. When Jesus is speaking these parables about the kingdom, he's either drawing people in or he's confirming them in their hardness and their decision to remain out, but no one is sat on top of that dividing wall. But it's at this point you might start thinking, well, hold on, is there a bit of a problem here? Because who isn't blind and deaf and hard-hearted when it comes to the things of God? God's law, God's will demands perfect obedience. He requires total worship in every part of our lives. Why is it that some people get it and see Jesus and some people don't and they just see the man called Jesus? Well, the thing is, in, in Scripture, God is quite clear no one on their own efforts gets it. That's our starting point. God would be quite just in leaving everyone to go their own way, to face judgment at the end of it. He would be perfectly fair and just in doing so. The answer is hidden in the parable of the sower and the soils. And we're going to hear about that next week. <laughs> to those um, who attend church regularly, we'll be given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven in this um, regard. But, but just to give you a kind of glimpse of what is coming, the key is in the word given in verse 11 to you it has been given. God has made a gracious gift. Everyone on their own, by default, is opposed to God. Everyone needs saving from their sins. And as sin is a willing refusal to have God as king, something pretty radical needs to happen so that blind, deaf, hard-hearted people actually get to see. And that radical thing is that God does something. God brings about a miraculous change. Remember what I've been saying, Jesus, who is God, does stuff with his words, well, with the same words and teachings that Jesus confirms some people's decision to say outside of the kingdom, with those same words, Jesus brings others in, and the difference in them is not in the word, but in the person, God has done something in them. In his own good pleasure, for reasons that are not accessible to us, but are still perfectly good, true and loving, even if we don't know what they are, he has brought about a change in some people so that they will see and hear and accept Jesus Christ. Jesus has already taught this really quite startling, yes, quite unsettling teaching. In Matthew chapter 11, let me read it to you, just a few verses. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children yes father for this was your good pleasure all things have been committed to me by my father no one knows the son except the father no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him no one can do this It says in John 3 as well, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they have been born from above, unless God has done something miraculous in them. And Jesus is saying, that is what is going on here. That is why you disciples understand the parables. You have been given the secrets of the kingdom. You have been given a miracle of eyes, ears and hearts that see, hear and love what they should and so he says in verse 16, "'Blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear.' Is that because the disciples did something? Because they did something to their own eyes and ears? They managed to sort of really strain hard to see and hear? Is it because they have some kind of eliteness about them? No, not at all. It's because God in his grace has chosen these ones, these children, these, those who are weak in the eyes of the world in order to have salvation." They could not have done it if God hadn't worked. Is this unfair? We might say, well, hold on, this is unfair. God is choosing some, not choosing others. Well, this is part of the unsettling nature of parables. They challenge how we think about God and the world and tell us we can't take Jesus on our terms, but need to take him on his. It is an astonishing reality of God's mercy that Jesus came. That God draws any at all towards Jesus and realizes just who is playing the violin. He doesn't have to do any of that. The scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God chooses to save some, but that he saves any. What is stressed here is not that the disciples deserve it more than others, but that God is gracious and kind and loving and merciful. And so we finish. My question for you this morning, what do you see and hear? As you go about your daily life, there are many good things pressing on you and your time. But this morning, Jesus, who does things with his word, from his Father, by his Spirit, has been doing it even now, even as I have been preaching, as his word has been opened. What are you going to do with it? It's not about sitting there and thinking, well, has it been given to me? Am I waiting for a a holy zap from heaven? That's, that's not how it works. You don't get given a holy zap. What is given are eyes and ears and hearts that are open to the fact that amongst the cacophony and chaos of life around you, however significant the noise, whatever the event, can't think of any events recently that are particularly um, loud or bright, <clears throat> um, however significant the noise, however bright the lights, however busy the crowds, none of it can offer you the goodness, beauty, and truth that you need, the life which is found in Jesus Christ. What you need are eyes, ears and hearts that are open to him. Not an answer to every possible question you might have. If that's what you're waiting for, you might be waiting a while. But my, my question for you this morning is, will you listen to Jesus? Even as you keep asking your questions, will you take him on his own terms? These disciples did. This is the will of his Father, And those who do so will join Jesus in the family of the kingdom of heaven. Amen.